0: This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. I'm excited to have back on the program today returning guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. I'm going to talk with Jeffrey about uh, whether or not we face more lockdowns in the future and get his take on whether or not we might be approaching a crack-up boom. And if you don't know what that is, you'll want to stay tuned. I'll talk with Jeffrey about what that is and what it might mean for you and your money. Speaking of you and your money, all this month, during the month of November, I have been making available my book titled Revenue Sourcing that was released in March of 2020. Uh, It contains a retirement planning strategy for the post-pandemic economy. I would encourage you to get a copy. I'd be glad to send you one absolutely free. All you need to do to get your copy is visit the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. The website, again, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. If you let me know where to mail you your copy of the book, you'll not only get the book, you'll also get some bonus information as well that I think will be especially pertinent and applicable to where we find ourselves today. So again, the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. Well, it's no secret that the policy of the Federal Reserve has been extremely aggressive since the time of the financial crisis. Interest rates have been kept at zero. Currency creation, also called quantitative easing, has been taking place in ever-increasing amounts. And of course, as we've discussed, there are a number of side effects to that policy. And the rather disturbing, alarming news is that as we move ahead, this policy will not be sustainable, and these side effects will intensify and affect more and more people, in my view. Now, one of the side effects. It can be a temporary benefit, but one of the side effects of low interest rates is that it's easy to borrow money and easier to service debt. And certainly there is a lot of debt in the U.S. economy, as I'll talk about with Jeffrey Tucker uh, in segments two and three as well. Uh, David Stockman uh, wrote an article this past week who talked about this very topic. Now, he took a look at the amount of debt that exists in non-financial businesses in the United States. So take out the banks, take out all the financial businesses, and if you look at the non-financial businesses and you compare the amount of debt that non-financial businesses have today um, and, and compare it to the U.S. economy, the number that you get is mind-boggling, and just to give you some historical references, back in 1972, the total business debt outstanding of $634 billion was about 46% of GDP. By 2007, business debt was $10.1 trillion and was now 321% of industrial production. in 1972 to 321% in 2007. Now, here we are 13, 13 years later, and now we are approaching 600%. We are at 592%. Well, why has debt gotten to these levels? Well... One of the primary reasons, in my view, is that it's never been cheaper to borrow money. It's never been easier to borrow money. And when you take a look at the amount of debt in the economy, when you compare it to the size of the economy or economic output, the U.S. economy, according to Mr. Stockman, is now carrying 13 times more debt than it did 50 years ago. Now, stocks have also done extremely well. I mean, if you take a look at where stocks were in 2009 at the market bottom, they have increased by more than 700% from about 670 to 4,600 on the S&P 500. So more than 700% stocks have rallied since 2009, since the market bottom. Now, if you compare that to GDP, gross domestic product or economic output, stock market cap was 62% or stock market value was 62% of GDP, it's now 204% of GDP. This is also a side effect of Fed policy. Now, what does this mean moving ahead. What does it mean for maybe the stock investments you have in your 401k or IRA? Well, you don't have to be an economist to figure out that when interest rates start to go back up, it will be more difficult for businesses to service this debt. It'll take more of their cash flow to service the debt, which means profits will decline. Profits will become weaker. That will be bad news, likely, for stocks at some point in the future. If you take a look at what stocks have done since 2009, stock investors have really found out that, hey, if there's a little bit of a decline, that's okay. The Fed's going to step in, and the Fed is going to support the markets, and markets are going to rally, and that's happened point to point from 2009 to the tune of more than a 700% gain. Now, at some point, unless profits increase, unless interest rates decline, which really can't happen, this has to have its effect on stocks. And as Mr. Stockman pointed out this past week, that may have just happened because for the first time, Since the decline in March of 2020, the S&P did not rebound back to new highs after testing its key uptrend technical levels. And that's a quote from Mr. Stockman's article. So the side effects, to get back to my, my focus in this segment of this Fed policy, has been that stocks are artificially higher than they would have otherwise been. And debt has accumulated to levels that are much higher than they would have been otherwise. Now, on last week's program, I talked about the fact that there is another side effect that is now coming to light. I discussed the fact that CalPERS, the largest public pension fund in the U.S., has decided to borrow money pledging pension fund assets as collateral and they'll borrow money to invest in alternative assets to try to get yields up so they can meet their obligations to the pension plan participants. There was an article this past week published on November 18 by Mark Glennon talking about the Illinois pension shortfall. Believe it or not, the unfunded liability for Illinois state and local pensions, is now over $500 billion. It's now over a half a trillion dollars. Now, to put that in perspective, if the state of Illinois went to every household, every Illinois household, and said, I need you to ante up so we can fix this problem, get this, the debt burden is now $110,000 per household. That's a big number, and it's likely that that pension funding shortfall will not be funded with anything other than newly created currency. As I talked about on last week's program, borrowing borrowing against pension fund assets to invest is bad policy. Letting a pension shortfall reach a half a trillion dollars is bad management. So the solution to these problems will likely end up being more of the same. More currency creation because the alternative is immediate and dire. Now what does all this mean for you? Well, my point in this particular segment and really on the radio program has been that we are really in unprecedented times. It's important that... When you're in unprecedented times and you're trying to achieve a certain financial goal, that you look at all options, and that's really what the Revenue Sourcing Book is designed to do. So uh, last opportunity during the month of November here to get your copy of the Revenue Sourcing Book. If you'd like to get a copy of it, you can go to the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. The website, again, is MyRevenueSourcingBook.com, and I'll be glad to send you a copy of the book, absolutely free. I'll also include some bonus information. So, again, if you're planning for retirement, if you're aspiring to retirement, get the perspective that's offered in this book. Again, the website, MyRevenueSourcingBook.com. I will be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, uh, Jeffrey A. Tucker. Uh, Jeffrey is the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. Uh, You can uh, check out the uh, articles and resources at brownstone.org. I would encourage you to do that. And Jeffrey, welcome back to the program.
1: I always enjoy being on your show, Dennis. Thank you.
0: Well, let's just start very quickly, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, you are the, the founder of the Brownstone Institute. Uh, just let the listeners know what the Brownstone Institute is all about, and what was your motivation in founding the Institute?
1: I realized in March 2020, when the lockdowns happened, uh, that we were entering into a new period of history. That was kind of our World War I. And we needed new voices, new institutions, new ways of thinking to stop that, to to recover from that disaster, but then also to stop it from ever happening again. So I threw myself into uh, public health over the uh, public health issues and and, uh, all that's associated with that and its interaction with economics, which is my traditional subject, uh, over the next year. But then Earlier this year, I just I realized that I my obsessions and focus on this was not only uh, not going away, but it was also the most urgent thing that I could possibly focus on. So I started the Brownstone Institute solely for that uh, to mark the occasion of the lockdowns and the mandates, and to uh, uh, essentially um, provide a counterweight to the media monopoly on this topic, where you know uh, you have the strange situation where. You have a minority of scientific establishment, but a very vocal minority in league with government, with in league with media, and it's been a complete lockdown, not only of our economies, but uh, but of information flows. So, <laughs> I started on to provide an alternative point of view. Uh publish a lot of scientific work, but then also uh, publishing the humanities and economics and many other areas, just to kind of urge a new enlightenment which i think is the only way out of this existing crisis we went to a very dark place and we need to get out of that and reclaim fundamental principles of uh, prosperity society and social peace
0: well jeffrey before we jump into the uh, economic and financial topics that we want to discuss today What's your current take on um, the the likelihood of additional lockdowns? I mean, Australia has seemed to have gone off the rails when it comes to lockdowns and show me your papers, other countries as well. And then you've got uh, the complete opposite in in other parts of the world. So just focusing on the United States, uh, what's the likelihood that we go back down that path?
1: Well, the administration this morning said that they're not going to go down that path. And I think that announcement this 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 morning was inspired in large part by uh, what is in fact the largest protest movement in the history of 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 human relations (laughs) that's been taking place over the last uh, building over the last year but really this past weekend we saw uh, protests of tens hundreds and thousands and and many 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 countries around the world some millions of people on the streets Uh, these vaccine mandates Uh, You know, in light of the lockdowns, in light of everything that's happened, has really fired people up. Uh, At some point, people have said, "I've I've had enough with this pseudoscience and this compulsion and divisions." And we're not going to let them. We're not going to let them uh, destroy us, turn us into a a feudal, uh, feudal state. So I think what happened is the Biden administration is looking at the very bad economic trends in this country. They're looking at declining popularity. Uh, really devastating uh, poll numbers for the Biden administration and looking around the world and seeing, you know, the world on fire and realizing that they need a different way to approach this topic. Uh, so it's 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 going to be, and this is a big change from last week, right? I mean, so last week uh, the administration was saying that we're going to have to go ahead with these uh, vaccine mandates, despite Court decisions, despite OSHA's having said they're not going to implement them or enforce them. Uh, So now we're seeing the the Biden administration reverse directions. So I'm pretty confident we're not going to go down the lockdown uh, direction again. But the problem is that, uh, you know, this is a migratory seasonal virus. And we've been trying to crush it for nearly two years now without any success. Um, the problem is that at some point they're going to have to admit that what, not only that, if they don't go into lockdowns, they're going to have to admit that lockdowns aren't the right thing, and then then you come to a real problem with the political establishment are going to have to admit at some point that they did the wrong thing over 2020 and 2021. That's going to be the real challenge. So I'm not expecting uh, uh, federal encouragement of uh, business closures or school closures and things like that, travel restrictions. We could still see them at state level, depending on uh, the, the, po- the politics of it. But even that is getting a little dicey because um, the elections, the, from the little data we have, they're turning against all these so-called public health measures really hard, and people are being thrown out of office. And uh, uh, and 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 I don't believe that uh, even in places like Michigan, California, Massachusetts, uh, or New York, that the political establishments there are absolutely suicidal. Uh, I don't think they're going to do it just for their own political interests.
0: Well, if you're just joining me, I'm chatting today with the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Uh, You can learn more about the Brownstone Institute at brownstone.org. And uh, Jeffrey, you you mentioned that you know the economic trends uh, in the country are not good. It seems that the Fed's original narrative regarding inflation being transitory is now falling apart. Um, Taking the topic of inflation, uh, how do you see things?
1: Well, it's terrible right now, and much worse than the data are showing because. Uh, because we have to remember, most of the data we have is 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 a little misleading on two on two grounds. One is that it's overly aggregated, so you could have, for example, a six percent CPI increase, but but a sixty percent increase in you know this commodity or that commodity, like you know building materials, for example. Last I looked, they were up like seventy five percent or uh, individual products um are are going through the roof, you know meat prices, that sort of thing the other the other thing about this data is that it's all old, right? so whatever we know today is only what was going on two months ago, and we don't know what's going on today, and we're talking about right now with inflationary trends we're we're talking about a real gallop you know and uh, 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 and it's leading and and an accelerating pace, so I think everything's probably worse than we know. I know for sure that the PPI is clocking double digit uh, rates of increase and uh, sometimes approaching depending on how you want to reassemble the data year-over-year year percentage increase in the index I've, I, I, I've, I've, I've generated forty percent um, and some aspects of the PPI. but I think probably we and the overall CPI we're looking at double uh, double digit inflation right now um, is in some ways of looking at the data. Uh, depending on which measure you use. In fact, if you use the uh, the Fed's preferred measure, uh, everything looks worse now than it did in 1979. So it's much worse than people know. Actually, here's the thing, Dennis. Your listeners know everything I just said. They know from their own experience when they go to the store. They know if they're builders, when they go to the Home Depot and they look at lumber prices, what's going on. So pe- people who are out there shopping, or car prices, or home prices, I mean, it doesn't matter where you look. Uh, fertilizer for farms, you know, it's just going through the roof. And then they read the Wall Street Journal, and they're saying, "Oh, you know, six percent—that's not believable at this point." We're looking at a, a, a very serious, very serious situation. I would say as bad uh, as it was in the late 1970s, that led to uh, you know complete political upheaval. So we're we're talking about a really dangerous situation right now, and. As much as, you know, <laughs> the Fed is just simply not trustworthy anymore. They said it was going to be transitory. It's not transitory. And now they, they're admitting that. And, and now they're saying they're going to fix it. Well, you know, they called it, they caused it. They denied they were causing problems. And now they're claiming to be the ones to fix it. I don't think that third thing is going to be true.
0: So, Jeffrey, when you look at what happened in the late 70s, I mean, Paul Volcker, who was chair of the the Fed at the time, increased interest rates to nearly 20 percent, which obviously subdued inflation. But uh, isn't the Fed really painted into a corner here? I mean, if they were to raise interest rates, doesn't this whole, uh, don't we go into a deflationary period that's going to be just extremely painful, not to mention the fact that the federal government cannot finance nearly $30 trillion in debt at 1980-level interest rates?
1: Uh, that's right. So it's going to massively balloon spending, and the U.S. government's going to have to shop all over the world to find markets for its debt um, while facing the possibility of uh, default. So the markets will dry up as interest rates are rising. Government spending will ha- on uh, servicing the debt will go through the roof. And um, and I, I wouldn't I, d- I don't think deflation is likely, although we could talk about that. It depends on what happens to de- the velocity. But um, but I think uh, uh, depression is actually more likely. Uh, we'll go through. A, I mean, I'm speculating here. But if, if we wanted to fix this problem, we're going to be looking at, at, at two to three years of really hard times. And I don't think that the Fed is courageous enough to, uh, to, to go through that. I mean, I, I, you know, the last time, and this is actually really kind of a scary realization, the last time that the, any leaders in the federal government were willing to tolerate a period of uh, uh, depressed economic conditions as a recovery measure, was in 1981 and 1982. Since then, every single crisis, from savings and loan all the way through the you know the dot com you know disaster, all the way through the 2008 uh, financial housing meltdown, all the way through 2020 with the lockdown. The prevailing method has been to has been to uh, not tolerate any kinds of downturns, but to inflate our way out of it. So I think that that'll probably be the method that people use this time, and if and if and if unless something changes, Dennis, we could be looking at a classic what's called a crack-up boom uh, that really does challenge uh, the value of the dollar and its durability over time. And you know, I don't want to talk Weimar yet, but the conditions are in place for something that could look really, really rough. Well, I want to talk more
0: about uh, a crack-up boom as uh, I think first uh, uh, actually defined by Ludwig von Mises. So uh, we will do that when RLA RLA Radio returns after these words. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am chatting today. With the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, uh, prolific author, uh, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker, Uh, you can learn more about the Brownstone Institute at brownstone.org, and I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, I appreciate the perspective very much. I know you will, too. So, Jeffrey, when we ran out of time, uh, as we were you know, discussing where we go here from an inflation standpoint, uh, uh, depression, you said we're really heading uh, potentially for something called a crack-up boom. So for our listeners maybe that uh, are not familiar with what a crack-up boom is, could we start there?
1: Sure, and I, let, let me just mention very quickly uh, a Wall Street Journal article that appeared about three days ago by a, a, a very naive, uh, underschooled journalist who, uh, you know, these days in the economics class they haven't even, they haven't talked about inflation for 40 years, so people don't understand anything about. It. But he can't understand why it is that prices are high and high and high and higher, and yet consumers keep buying and buying and buying. I mean, he, he literally could not understand it. Now he's thinking in terms of uh, just you know, a plain supply and demand model, you expect to buy less at higher prices and buy more at uh, lower prices. Uh, you know, it's, it's, that's just sort of the way uh, the law of demand uh, works, uh, changes in quantity purchased based on price. So what? So what's different about an inflationary economy? Well, the problem is, and this is why he didn't really get it. Um so under an inflation, what you're, what you're what you're doing is you're expecting your money to be worth less in the future than it is today, and you're given a financial incentive to spend rather than save, uh, and and even more than that, you're you're given a financial incentive to go into debt uh, uh, because you're hoping to pay off that money in the in, in the future in cheaper in dollars that that have less purchasing power, which is to say, in and in the in, in terms of monetary statistics, the velocity of money reverses itself. Because usually in a crisis, you see the, the velocity uh, go down. And that's been true throughout this crisis. If that turns in the other direction, that indicates a complete change in expectations concerning inflation. And so you see uh, more purchases at higher prices than you would at lower prices. That's one of the reasons inflation is so perverse that actually seems to reverse the economic law. It's not really reversing the economics law. All it's doing is into adding in an additional consideration. So the laws of supply and dem- demand are formulated uh, with the presumption of stable money. If the money is not stable, everything can, can turn in on the stuff and go the other direction. That's the boom part. So um, so people buying wildly. You see that happening in housing right now, right? Buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. Running here, running there, running there. Uh, it's happening in, in, in cars, too, P, you know. Uh, people frantically trying to get you know, new and used uh, uh, cars, and and uh, back ordered backordered uh, by six months and so on. And that's not just the chip shortage. That's also people's frantic desire to turn their uh, cash into something real. Uh, and and as that accelerates, it seems like wild economic activity, which people confuse with prosperity. They are not the same thing. Economic activity going on. It's not the same thing as Building prosperity. So, as these inflation expectations increase, you have the ironic uh, situation where uh, it, it starts to feed it, feed it, feed on itself so the the more money that people pull out of their cash portfolios to to spend puts hot money on the street with reducing the value of each each unit and increasing inflation. Which feeds in turn to a kind of public fear that uh, that uh, uh, they need to get rid of their dollars sooner, and and you combine that with, with shortages, which are inevitable, even without supply chain breakages and clogged docks, uh, you're going to get uh, shortages just because production structures are, are changing too quickly for producers to keep up with, even without uh, the shortage of, of 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 chips and so on, uh, you're going to have shortages. But with all those things and growing shortages in a whole series of areas right now, empty shelves at the grocery store, turkeys are out at the store two days before Thanksgiving. Um, you could create the conditions that lead to economic panic, panic, and that's what Mises calls a crack up boom. So it's you know it's 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 a, a, a panic mind. Combined with dramatic losses in purchasing power of the dollar, and I can't believe I'm even talking about this stuff. I mean, all this stuff is in the textbooks and it's in history. But if things continue as they're going right now, we could be headed for something that uh, uh, that we've not seen in our lifetimes.
0: Well. Jeffrey, when you when you take a look at the level of currency that's been created, I've seen a number of uh, economists uh, from the Austrian school. They seem to be the only ones talking about it that have drawn very sobering comparisons between the amount of currency that was created, uh, you know, from 1920 to 1922 in uh, Weimar, Germany, uh, versus today. And when you look at the currency creation, I mean, they are right on par. So, given the lag between currency creation and inflation kicking in, can we avoid that outcome?
1: We can avoid it, whether we will or not, is another consideration entirely, because I'm not sure. There's any kind of consciousness out there about the relationship between uh, uh, quantitative measures of uh, of money and and what's happening to prices I mean I I can't understand that Part, partially the problem is that for 40 years we've not really had a big problem with inflation so you've got economists out there who have been who are pretty convinced that it's just like we are smart enough to avoid that that's what they thought in Germany too in 1920. You know, people always think they're too smart to avoid the errors of the past until they repeat them again. So you look at the monetary aggregates, and I don't care what you look at, M1, M2, uh, monetary base, no matter which way you look at it, we've seen historic, unbelievable increases in in money. That has to have some effect. Now, if all that money stays locked up, that the Fed or in people's bank accounts and people aren't doing anything with it, yeah, you'll avoid it. I mean, if I've tendered a trillion dollars for you right now and you're stuck in your mattress, it's not going to have any effect on the prices in your community. But if you start going out and spending that, it becomes hot money in the streets, it's going to have a gigantic effect. So a lot of it comes down to what people do with the money. And this is, this is what I'm talking about, this velocity change. So if you get a change of psychology out there, and it seems to be happening right now, I mean, not in all sectors, but in many sectors, you are starting to see a change. And just looking at the math, uh, the results could be absolutely terrifying. You know, the equation of exchange is is a truism: money times velocity equals price uh, times uh, production. Okay, but you change that V. We've been spared inflation over the last two years because the V is so low. But if that flips in the other direction things could get out of hand really fast and nobody would be in a position to do anything about it. That's the scary part.
0: So Jeffrey, if somebody's listening to this and uh, obviously uh, I have conversations with people all the time and we uh, only half jokingly say, you know, if you're not a little bit apprehensive, you don't fully understand the situation because that's certainly yeah. true. But well, what kind of advice would you give someone who's saying, you know, I, I've just worked hard all my life. I've saved money in my retirement accounts, and, and now the rules there are changing. And I just want to have a comfortable retirement like my parents did. It, it seems that that's kind of a fleeting dream at this
1: point. Mm, it's a very much of a worry, and I I think about this, you know, myself with uh, you know over the last two years, many people have fled lockdown states. You know, they fled fled California, Michigan, New York, New Hampshire. You know, or not New Hampshire, but Massachusetts and uh, Connecticut and so on, Rhode Island for Florida and Texas, and they're over there happy uh, doing the thing. But the, but the problem is that, that uh, you know, we all use the same money. Uh, the economy is, is infinitely complex and, and really very interrelated. And, you know, if the poultry producers, uh, just to take one example, can't get their meat inspected because seventy-five percent of the meat inspectors have quit because they don't want the vaccine. Well, that's that's a serious serious problem. Uh, or in the case of you know the clogged docks in Los Angeles, if you if there's truckers, if there's a shortage of truckers because they they're not uh, they're demoralized, they don't want to go back. You know whatever the thing is. You're going to get breakages all over the country, and when the when then when the money starts dying, that's going to affect Texas and Florida too. So all of which reminds me of a statement that Ludovico Mises made in 1922. He said, "When uh, civilization is sweeping towards destruction, um, there's no safe place for anyone." And therefore, it's the obligation of every person to throw himself into the intellectual struggle uh, to restore liberty. And I I think about that quote a lot, uh, a lot of times because I just don't I don't believe there is a safe space. I mean, I have my friends who own Bitcoin saying, "No, B- Bitcoin fixes this." Well, it doesn't really fix it. it what it does is that it, it treats people who who own Bitcoin very well. In the sense that they're going to be seeing their net worth rise. But that, you know, what are you going to do with the net worth if there's no food? You know, if you can't get the product, if you can't get uh, replacement parts for your car, uh, if you can't get anybody to come to your house and and repair your heater, uh, um, you you, you can't eat Bitcoin. uh, You can't burn Bitcoin to keep you uh, warm. So, you know, it's an illusion. There is no safe space for anybody when, when things like this happen. That's why they're so deeply, deeply tragic. And I understand your friends and their worry about they just wanted a peaceful retirement. Well, I agree with that. Look what, look what they've done to us, you know. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is this not the, the people's fault. This was, this was the ruling class's fault, what, they, what they've done to us. And we desperately need to fix it. We need to rediscover the wisdom of the Enlightenment. But it's going to be a long haul. i'm I'm estimating five or ten years for uh, recovery from this disaster. If then.
0: Going back to the uh, Mises quote that you mentioned, um, and uh, I won't try to uh, I won't try to quote it, but but don't you think that, uh, there, there are more and more people now uh, trying to understand what's going on, and 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 don't you think that if there's anything positive happening now, that that there maybe is uh, uh, less uh, collective apathy among the populace? Uh,
1: you mean now, as versus say two years ago? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I hope you're right about that. I was genuinely shocked when all the lockdowns happened that that people did not get scared that people were not opposed to it. people did not go out into the streets and say, no, um, I think things have changed, but I don't think they've changed fast enough. And it's one of the reasons I started the Brownstone Institute is that, uh, you know, we keep talking about Mises today, of course, but, you know, he had a place to go in 1934 when his world fell apart in Vienna, he went to Geneva in Switzerland and they kept him safe for six years. Uh, we've always, after the fall of Rome, you know, we had monasteries to keep people safe. Um, all times and all places have had to have uh, places that dedicated to preserving wisdom, preserving uh, humane values, preserving uh, truth and science in times of crisis. And so I, I really did think that Brownstone Institute needs to exist for that reason, uh, uh, just to preserve and, and uh, inspire uh, through these darkest times. And I don't believe for a moment we're through these, the dark times. So I, I wish we were. But I I just don't believe it. I think we're headed to yet another crisis of civilization. You'd think we'd learn by now but for some reason, human beings had, you know, too many years go by where we have it too good and people forget. So we're about to be, we introduced some of the great lessons that previous generations have learned that have since been forgotten.
0: Yeah, I certainly agree with that. Well, my my guest today has been Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. He's the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. You can learn more at brownstone.org. I would encourage you to do that. Uh, Jeffrey, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Very much appreciate your perspective and your insights and uh, keep up the good work. Love to have you back down the road.
1: Thanks so much, Dennis, for having me.
0: Always appreciate it. We will return after these words. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Glad you're listening in today, and thanks again to my special guest on this week's program, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker, for joining me. During my conversation with Jeffrey today, we talked about inflation, and we talked about an economist by the name of Ludwig von Mises, and Mr. Mises wrote something, a book titled Human Action in 1949, and I want to give you just a bit from that book to carry on in this theme that Jeffrey and I really began. And I'm quoting, He who believes that the prices of the goods in which he takes an interest will rise buys more of them than he would have bought in the absence of this belief. Accordingly, he restricts his cash holding. He who believes that prices will drop restricts his purchases and thus enlarges his cash holding. So von Mises is saying that if you think prices in the future are going to be higher than they are today, you're going to really want to get out of cash and buy any goods that you might need in the future now when prices are lower and your cash goes further. Now, conversely, if you believe prices will drop, then you're likely going to hold on to cash and you're going to wait for the prices to drop to buy what it is that you need. Now let me go back to what von Mises wrote in 1949. He said, and again, quote, As long as such speculative anticipations are limited to some commodities, they do not bring about a general tendency toward changes in cash holding, end quote. So von Mises is really saying that as long as this is not widespread, it probably doesn't affect a whole lot. However, and I'll quote again, But it is different if people believe they are on the eve of big cash-induced changes in purchasing power. When they expect that prices of all goods will rise or fall, they expand or restrict their purchases. These attitudes strengthen and accelerate the expected tendencies considerably. This goes on until the point is reached beyond which no further changes in the purchasing power of money are expected. Only then does the inclination to buy or to sell stop and do people again begin to increase or decrease their cash holdings, end quote. So we may be approaching a time when people are going to say, you know, this inflation is really getting out of hand. I think I'll go buy the car now if I can find it instead of waiting a year or two. See, if you expect expect prices are going to decline, you might put some tires on the old car and keep driving it for a year or two because you think your cash will go further in a year or two. So what we're really talking about here is when might we reach that tipping point. We talked in my interview with Jeffrey Tucker today, and he brought up the term velocity. Well, this has everything to do with velocity. Because if you think that prices in the future are going to rise, and you think they're going to rise to such an extent that it makes sense to buy items now rather than putting off those purchases to sometime in the future... As you spend money and everybody else spends money, the velocity of money, the rate at which money moves through the economy now increases, and that's when inflation really can kick in in earnest. Now, we haven't seen that to this point, despite the fact that by almost any objective private measure, inflation is now in double digits. Now, if you take a look at the money supply compared to economic output. um, Only in the last couple of years has this ratio gotten out of whack. And inflation up to this point, despite all this currency creation since the time of the financial crisis, has remained relatively subdued because people have not expected the purchasing power of their dollars to change significantly. We all expect the dollar is going to buy a little bit less a year from now than it does today, but as soon as the belief takes hold that it's going to buy a lot less, that's when we see the velocity of money pick up, and that's when we see inflation and perhaps even a hyperinflationary outcome like some of my guests have forecast. Now, I have a resource available And if you're just joining me, that resource is the Revenue Sourcing book. That book was actually published um, just after uh, the market crashed in uh, March of 2020, and it contains a retirement planning strategy for the post-pandemic economy. The book is titled Revenue Sourcing, and I would encourage you to get a copy if you've not yet done so. You can go to the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com, and let me know where to mail you your copy of the book, as well as some bonus information, and I'll be very glad to do that. Again, the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. Also, if you would like to go to our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, you'll find a complete resource center on our website. Uh, The podcast version of this radio program is available on that website for replay. I do a weekly headline roundup webinar uh, where I take a look at current headlines in detail and how they might affect you and your retirement. You can get all those replays on the website, and you can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Again, the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use, and I'll be back again next week.